With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Massacre on Muriel Court. I'm your host, Lauren. When I started researching for this show, I promised myself that I would explore any and every suspect or theory about the murder of the Sims family that I could find, no matter how wacky it may seem. As you know, if you listen to episodes 7 and 8, I even went down the Zodiac rabbit hole. According to an article in Psychology Today titled The Psychology of Copycat Killers, Exploring the Relationship Between Crime-Related Media Coverage and Murder, written by Joni E. Johnston, a copycat crime is a criminal act that is modeled after or inspired by a previous crime that has been reported in the media or published in fiction. Few copycat crimes are exact replicas of the event that inspired them. Instead, the imitator lifts and copies certain elements motivation, techniques, setting, etc. of the original crime. While most copycat crimes occur within two years of the initial incident, a crime can occur any number of years after the original crime. Criminologists seem to agree that violence in the media, movies, and video games can and has inspired real-life violence, but this is not a new phenomenon. The term copycat, as it relates to these types of killings, appears to have been coined around 1912, when the intense media coverage of the Jack the Ripper murders caused a rash of similar crimes. Due to the increase of replicated crimes, criminologists soon began to believe that media coverage played a role in inspiring other criminals to commit crimes in a similar fashion and even for non-criminals to begin committing crimes when they otherwise might not have done so. So in this episode, I'd like to explore the possibility that the murderer of the Sims family was a copycat killer. It's mostly quiet on Muriel Court, but that wasn't the case in 1966 when Robert Sims, his wife Helen, and young daughter Joy found gagged, stabbed, and shot to death. Safer politically to leave it alone. Moronic is the word that comes to mind. He's accusing two top officials of a cover up. Standing back there under the banana trees. 
Surveillance video of a 1966 FSU football game may be the key to cracking the code in this case gone cold. You do that. And while state officials aren't releasing details regarding suspects or persons of interest, they did stress their commitment to finding the 10th killers. Oh, I think you did it. All of a sudden, you became absolutely down, totally upset with that. It's a case that, uh, uh, we would certainly like to see solved, uh, and uh, investigators are actively working on the case. In 1982, seven people died in the Chicago area after taking extra strength Tylenol that had been laced with cyanide. Four years later, a woman in New York died after taking two cyanide-laced Tylenol capsules. That same year, two people in Washington State died after taking cyanide-laced Excedrin. In this case, a woman named Stella Nickel was caught and convicted of product tampering and sentenced to 80 years in prison. Nickel was the wife of one of the victims. She wanted to kill her husband, but make it appear as if he was just another victim of some crazed lunatic who was poisoning medicine again. In 1991, a man named Joseph Melling attempted to kill his wife and collect on her $700,000 life insurance policy, but actually ended up killing two strangers by filling Sudafed capsules with cyanide. The two victims died after buying the tainted capsules in local stores. But Mr. Melling's wife, Jennifer, survived taking the capsules and actually testified on his behalf. That didn't help him much, though, because he was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. Now, if you're a fan of our other podcast, Paradise After Dark, you may have heard our episode covering the murder of 16-year-old Cassie Jo Stoddard in Pocatello, Idaho, on September 22, 2006. The two killers, Brian Draper and Tori Adamchik, both enjoyed horror films. Draper was often seen walking around school with his Sony camcorder filming, and they apparently had an obsession with murder and serial killers. Not just that they liked true crime, they actually idolized Ted Bundy, the Zodiac, and even the Columbine murderers. Draper, in particular, had always admired the Columbine killers, mainly because of the attention they received after the crimes. Adam Chick was said to be obsessed with the movie Scream and wanted to replicate those murders in real life. The boys even started filming themselves talking about and planning the murders. I have a clip of one of their homemade films I'll play for you now. There should be no odds against killing people. I know it's a wrong thing, but... Hell, hell, you restrict somebody from it, they're going to want it more. We found our victim, and sad as it may be, she's our friend. But you know what? We all have to make sacrifices. Our first victim is going to be Cassie Stoddard. She's going to be alone in a big, dark house out in the middle of nowhere. How perfect can you get? I, I mean, like, holy shit, dude. I'm horny just thinking about it. Hell yeah. The original Scream movie was released in the United States on December 20th, 1996. The slasher film was directed by Wes Craven and written by Kevin Williamson. It starred David Arquette, Nev Campbell, Courtney Cox, Matthew Lillard, Rose McGowan, Skeet Ulrich, Jamie Kennedy, and Drew Barrymore. 
The basic plot of the movie follows a fictional Sidney Prescott, played by Nev Campbell, a high school student in the fictional town of Woodsboro, California, who becomes the target of a mysterious killer in a Hollywood costume known as Ghostface. The movie was actually based on real events, a case that Paradise After Dark also covered not so long ago, the Gainesville Ripper. Scream was credited with revitalizing the slasher genre in the 1990s, which was considered to be almost dead following an influx of direct-to-video titles and numerous sequels to establish horror franchises of the 1970s and 1980s. Scream's success spawned a series of sequels, but these sequels were not nearly as successful as the first. So Cassie Jo Stoddart was house-sitting for her aunt and uncle at their home in a rural area just a few miles away from her own residence. Draper and Adam Chick snuck into the house around 11 p.m. that evening. Draper was armed with a dagger-style weapon, and Adam Chick had a hunting knife. Draper attempted to scare Cassie by opening and slamming a closet door at the top of the stairs. When this attempt to frighten her failed, Draper and Adam Chick attacked. The two stabbed Cassie Joe repeatedly until she stopped moving. After the murders, they of course had to film themselves again. I just killed Cassie. We just left her house. This is not a fucking joke. I'm shaking. I stabbed her in the throat and I saw her lifeless body just disappear. Dude, I oh just killed God. Cassie. Oh, oh, fuck. That felt like fucking real. I mean, it went by so Shut fast. Shut the fuck up. We gotta get our act straight. Okay. One of Florida's most brutal unsolved murders occurred in Osprey, Florida, six days before Christmas in 1959. Christine Walker, aged 24, her husband Cliff Walker, aged 25, and their children Jimmy, aged 3, and Debbie, aged 1, were all murdered in their home on December 19, 1959. The family lived on a cattle ranch, the Palmer Ranch, where Cliff worked as a hand. On the morning of December 20th, 1959, Daniel McLeod, a co-worker of Cliff's, went by the ranch to pick Cliff up. They had plans to go hog hunting that day. Pulling up to the walker's small home in his truck, McLeod immediately found it odd that the house was dark and relatively quiet. Assuming that Cliff had overslept, he knocked on the door. After getting no answer for some time, he became suspicious and cut through the screen door and entered the home. There he discovered the family, slaughtered. Christine was found in the doorway to the living room. She had been sexually assaulted and shot to death. Cliff and Jimmy were in the corner of the living room, both shot. And little Debbie was found in the bathtub. She had been shot and then drowned in the tub. Physical evidence left at the scene included a bloody cowboy boot, a cellophane strip from a cool cigarette wrapper, and a fingerprint on the bathtub faucet. Police also discovered that the killers took the couple's marriage certificate, Christine's high school majorette uniform, and Cliff's pocket knife. Now remember the Sims marriage certificate was also taken when they were killed a little less than six years later? About a month before the Walker murders, Perry Smith and Dick Hickok slaughtered the four-member Clutter family in Kansas, creating a tragedy that was immortalized in author Truman Capote's 1966 true crime masterpiece, In Cold Blood. 
Herb Clutter, his wife Bonnie, and their teenage children, Nancy and Kenyon, were murdered in their rural home just outside the small farming community of Holcomb, Kansas, in the early morning hours of November 15, 1959. Each of the four victims had been killed by a single shotgun blast to the head, though Herb's throat was cut as well, and each spent shell was retrieved by the killer. Recounting later the sequence of events that night, Perry Smith claimed to have dissuaded Dick Hickok from raping Nancy Clutter. The crime was heavily reported, even catching the attention of author Truman Capote before the killers were even caught. Capote and his childhood friend, fellow famous author Harper Lee, flew out to Kansas to study the case firsthand as it was unfolding. Smith and Hickok had always been suspects in the Walker family murder because the crimes were so similar and the killers had actually fled to Florida after murdering the Clutters, but they never had enough evidence to tie them to the Walkers. The sheriff's office admitted that Hickok and Smith had been considered suspects as far back as 1960. But in 2012, the Sarasota County Sheriff's Office began investigating again any possible links between the Walker family murders and Perry Smith and Dick Hickok. In December 2012, Sarasota County investigators announced that they were seeking an order to exhume Smith and Hickok's body from Mount Muncie Cemetery in the hopes that mitochondrial DNA extracted from their bones could be matched to semen found at the Walker home. Hickok and Smith's bodies were exhumed and the DNA extracted. The results came back in August of 2013, and the Sarasota County Sheriff's Office announced that they were unable to find a match between the DNA of either Perry Smith or Richard Hickok with the samples in the Walker family. Truman Capote's book, In Cold Blood, which details the murder of the Clutter family, was released in January of 1966. I believe I already mentioned in a previous episode that investigators in Tallahassee looked into everyone who had borrowed that book from the local library after the Sims were killed. So were the Sims murders a copycat killing based on the Walker or the Clutter family murders? With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back. Back in episode 6, Possible Connections, we discussed the murder of the Bricka family in Cincinnati, Ohio on September 25, 1966, less than a month before the Sims were killed. Just to refresh your memory, on Sunday, September 25, 1966, Jerry Bricka, a 28-year-old chemical engineer, his 23-year-old wife Linda, and the couple's four-year-old daughter, Debbie, were murdered in their home. Jerry and Linda were dead in their bedroom. Both had been stabbed multiple times in the chest, neck, and face, 
and both had been bound at some point in time. Debbie was found in her bedroom, and she had also been killed with a knife. According to the autopsy report, Jerry was stabbed nine times and Linda eight. The primary wounds in both of them were seven inches deep. Debbie was stabbed four times, each thrust piercing completely through her small body. One investigator observed it was overkill. In the Possible Connections episode, we compare the Bricka murders to the Sims murders to see if they may have possibly been connected. Let's do the comparison again, but this time thinking about the possibility that the cases are not at all connected and maybe the Sims murder was a copycat killing. In both the Sims and Bricka murders, a mother, father, and female child was murdered. The crimes happened approximately five weeks apart. In both cases, there was no sign of forced entry and no sign of robbery. In both cases, it seemed as if the family may have known the killer. The TV was left on in both scenes. Both the children were killed brutally, or overkilled, if you will. Both families were bound. There was a possible sexual assault of Linda Bricka. There was a possible sexual assault of Joy Sims. In both murders, a knife had been used. Both Linda Bricka and Joyce Sims' bodies appeared staged. The direction of the stab wounds in both cases indicated the killer was left-handed. The murder weapon was not found at either scene. Both Jerry Bricka and Robert Sims had prestigious positions at their place of employment, and both cases are still unsolved. Now let's contrast again. The Sims were shot and only Joy was stabbed while the Brickas were only stabbed. The Sims were bound with items found inside the home, hosiery and etc., while the Brickas were bound with unknown items, possibly medical tape, that was taken from the scene. The Bricka murders appeared more professional. The killer or killers brought and took away the bindings, and they sedated the dogs, although there was no dogs in the Sims' house. According to HistoryByDay.com, the Monday morning paper was missing, so detectives theorized the killer stayed in the Bricka home at least until dawn, possibly even wrapping the knife and evidence in the newspaper and throwing it out in the garbage can. The killer or killers in the Sims case appeared to be in and out in a hurry. The Bricka crime scene was secured right away while the Sims crime scene was a disaster. And obviously, the Brickas were in Ohio and the Sims were in Florida. The Bricka murders were also highly publicized in the media all across the country. So far, there is no concrete evidence connecting the Sims and the Bricka cases, so if we set that theory aside, can we look at it from the angle of a copycat killing? Let's go back and talk a little more about copycat killings in general. Dr. Raymond Surrett is a professor of criminal justice at UCF's College of Community Innovation and Education in Orlando, Florida. In the publication, Crime Media Culture, an international journal, volume 12, issue 1, which was published on September 15, 2015, Dr. Surrett wrote about a study he conducted on copycat killers. In this study, he surveyed 574 male and female inmates about their criminal behavior. These prisoners were pretty evenly split between white and black, close to 40%, and 15% were Latino. 
The majority, 75%, were male, and a third were under the age of 27. Most had lengthy rap sheets, five or more arrests, with only 8% in jail for their first time. Dr. Surrett asked questions about each inmate's exposure to real-world crime via his or her neighborhood, friends, and family members, and collected data about each inmate's exposure and reaction to crime-related media. 22% of the inmates admitted to having committed a copycat crime. One out of five of these crimes were violent. Men were more likely than women to copy someone else's crime, and they were most likely to do it early in their criminal career. Not surprisingly, they were also most likely to copy the criminal behavior of a real-world crime, such as a friend or relative. Criminals most likely to copy a crime from the media were those who were already predisposed to use it for those reasons. Approximately 20% of the inmates saw the media as a valuable resource for learning how to commit a crime and one out of every six stated they were drawn to crime-related stories. These same inmates were significantly more likely to have committed a previous copycat crime. So back to the Psychology Today article that I cited in the beginning of this episode. Johnston writes, Research tells us that no amount of sensationalized crime coverage will send a happy, well-adjusted citizen over the edge. For individuals predisposed to violence, though, crime-related media can fan the flames of violence in two ways. First, it can lower that person's natural human inhibition against killing by allowing him to create some psychological distance from what he is about to do. Temporarily taking on a persona or character of someone else makes it easier to harm others. It allows him to act in a way in which he generally would not act otherwise and psychologically separate his own identity from the role he is playing. This is most likely to happen in the two weeks after a high-profile murder. But given the time frame of the crimes we are specifically discussing and the speed at which news traveled back then, I would feel safe extending that time frame out to possibly six weeks. Johnston continues, Second, crime media can be a powerful teaching tool. If one is oriented toward violence, violent media can direct the motivated person to where, what, and how to succeed. It can also reinforce the notion that reproducing the original crime, or even better, topping it, will result in the attention and publicity the first one received. This can be a powerful motivator for individuals who seek the same level of attention. In my opinion, the only two characters in this story who appear to be attention-seeking are Vernon Fox Jr., as you heard in an earlier episode with his online postings and emails back and forth with me, and a man named David Livingston, a former boyfriend of Jenny Sims, who we haven't discussed yet, but we will. If you have any thoughts or ideas on this theory, please feel free to reach out to me on social media or send me an email at palmahawkmedia at gmail.com. Massacre on Muriel Court is researched, written, and produced by me, Lauren Samples. If you'd like to support the show, please consider joining our Palmahawk Media Patreon page at patreon.com backslash palmahawkmedia. That's P-A-L-M-A-H-A-W-K media. On Patreon, you'll receive early and ad-free episodes of this show 
and our sister show, Paradise After Dark, along with exclusive content for both shows. Thanks for listening. <laughs>